Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello there, Al Murray here. Um, right, just before we get started, a quick note to say that this Thursday, October the 1st, we're making our live stream available to everyone, not just members of the independent company. It's a chance to give all of you a taste of the fun of the podcast done live on the internet. That's right, you can actually see us while we're disappearing down the forgotten lanes and rabbit holes of the war. This Thursday is a double bill. We're doing a watch-along of Band of Brothers. We call this type of thing Gurglebox. That's at 8.30pm, where we all start watching the video at the same time and chat about it. Then at 9.30, we'll be answering your questions about all things Second World War. So, join us at 8.30 on Thursday night. The link will be available on Twitter and on our website, wehavewayspod.com. See you then. I'm looking forward to it. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and uh, James Holland. And we are delighted, aren't we, James? This is... Um, we are. This is, we, this we, is we fantastic. Are properly thrilled. We're properly thrilled, actually, to be joined today for this edition of, uh, of the podcast by, uh, well, Robert Harris. Now, um, those of you who uh, are fans of counterfactual Second World War head-scratching, which many of our listeners are, we know that perfectly well from our emails and from our Twitter feed... Um, I've doubtless run into Robert's work over the years and the, the level of exhaustive and uh, plainly exhausting research that goes into your books, Robert. And your latest, V2, which James and I have both read. First of all, it's a lockdown book, isn't it? Yes, well, it was written in lockdown or, or three quarters of it, yeah. Um, yes, I'd written about 20,000 words when we were all told to stay indoors and never go anywhere. And for about two weeks, I couldn't write a word. And then I thought, well, to hell with this. I might as well come out with something at the end of it. So I sat down and uh, and I got it done. Slightly to yes, my well, because it is it's a peculiar environment to write in, isn't it? Because it because you're sort of it's four walls and unstimulating, isn't it? The, you don't have the normal things that you'd have for writing, which is being able to get away from the book and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, I mean, the re- periods of recreation are necessary if you're going to have creation, I think. And you need that break from the desk and you need to get out and see friends and have a change of scenery. And, of course, one didn't have that. Yeah. I think most people found during lockdown that it was quite hard to sleep or, or, or that one did sleep, but there were a lot of dreams and your subconscious was all stirred up. Uh, so it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't easy to write the book and I couldn't do more than about four hours a day, but I did four hours a day, seven days a week. I, I, and, and lo and behold... That we've both read it now. The thing is, uh, um, I live in I live in Chiswick in West London, around the corner from Staveley Road, where the first V two uh, struck struck London. Um, the, the the thing that the thing that always struck me when I went there, when, and I filmed there ages ago, but it's a place I go past once a week, is the damage that bomb did, the sheer damage that the that the first V two did. Uh, it didn't kill very many people, but it caused absolute devastation. These were these were uh, characterised by the Germans as terror weapons, but that's the only real way of looking at them, isn't it? They're, these are these are a, a terror weapon, in no two ways about it. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, and people um, who lived through all of the Blitz in London, conventional bombing, mm. Doodlebug, the V1, and the V2. Um, there seemed to be a consensus that the V2 was the most alarming. I mean, it came at the end of the war when people thought the Germans were beaten. Uh, they were at the peak seven or eight hitting London every day. Yeah. Uh, you could quite often hear the bang right across, reverberating right across the capital. Uh, you had, there was no warning. It hit the ground at 2,000 miles an hour, so you could even see it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, it, and it did profound damage, as you say, because it hit at such speed, even though it only had a one-ton warhead, which what, sounds a lot but isn't actually huge. It went so deep when it exploded 
the, the shock waves rippled out and it had caused damage within a radius of about a quarter of a mile. And I was astonished when I was researching V2 to discover that um, they reckon 600,000 buildings in London were either damaged or destroyed by the V2. And it was a major contribution to the post-war housing crisis. Which is, wow, a, I mean, that, that is a huge amount. And actually, I, I remember going and talking to a chap who, who witnessed the, the last one to come down, which uh, wasn't... 27th of March 1945 was the day the last two arrived and one was in Whitechapel and the second one was in Valence Road in Orpington which I suppose strictly speaking isn't in London it's in Kent but it's it sort of is because it's a suburb uh, and and that was the last civilian to be killed as well it was, it was a 34 year old lady um, who was killed in that attack and and you know we were standing on the street that had been rebuilt and he produced all these photographs of what it had looked like at, you know on the, the following day at the end of March 1945. And, you know, I mean, it was just absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it, it, you know, it sort of looked like Beirut. I mean, it was just absolutely astonishing how much violence there was. I mean, Robert, I thought one of the things that I, I, that really kind of got me when I was reading it was this, when, you, when you've got, you've got Kay at the beginning and, the, 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 and she experiences the V2 kind of firsthand, that kind of sort of sucking out of the atmosphere of the kind of oxygen around her before it came. I thought that, that was incredibly mm. vivid. Yeah, I know. It's one of the things that uh, really struck me reading eyewitness accounts. as a, a woman eyewitness uh, to a, another strike that's in the novel where Woolworths was hit at New Cross in, uh, yeah. in, in Deptford. Uh, and the, the, a woman who was carrying her baby up the street, she said uh, something as if all the air had been sucked away. And there just seemed to have been this momentary kind of like all the sea had gone suddenly before a tsunami. You know, the air suddenly went. And this was because of the speed at which it was coming down. And then uh, if you were under a V2, that was, you wouldn't hear anything. You'd just feel that. But depending on where you stood, there would be a sonic boom as the thing broke the sound barrier coming in. There'd be the crash of the explosion. And then the very last thing you would hear is the onrushing express train noise of the actual rocket descending. I mean, it's a terrifying kind of futuristic mm. war that's happening in 1944 and it's happening within living memory. That's the other thing that struck me, that one European nation was occupying another European nation and firing ballistic missiles, <laughs> capital of a third, within living memory. It's an extraordinary thought. Yeah, isn't it? Yes, it, yes, it's it's oh, it's it, it's truly boggling, actually. And uh, the, the the Robert, in the, it, it, what I loved about the the novel, though, is you've clearly you've 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 taken this uh, uh, attempt to, to to locate where the rockets are from someone's memoir. It's it, it's based on a, a, a true story, isn't it? In effect. Yes, the book's genesis was four years ago. There was an obituary in the Times. I've reached this stage of life where the first thing I read in the newspapers <laughs> is always the obituary. Uh, they're so much more interesting and comforting in a funny kind of way <laughs> than the news pages. And uh, there was an obituary in 2016 of a woman called Eileen Young's husband. Yeah. The obituary was published on a Monday. She died on the fr previous Friday at the age of 95. She'd been an officer in the, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, or WAF, uh, she'd been one of those women involved in plotting uh, incoming uh, enemy aircraft. She was good at mathematics and she was transferred to this tiny unit uh, about a month after the V2 started hitting London. And uh, the idea was that the V2, which struck London within five minutes and, uh, and at one point reached a speed of three and a half thousand miles away, uh, miles an hour, and went 60 miles high. There was no protection against it, except the fact that it was ballistic. That is that it was powered for the first minute and then it flew like a stone flung from a catapult. And that describes a, a mathematically calculable arc. So the British decided to send high looking radars to Belgium, 70 miles south of, where, of the uh, Dutch coast where the missiles were being launched from. And they could briefly glimpse this supersonic missile and plot it on, they had cathode ray mm. screens by that time. And then of course you'd have the point where it hit in Southeast London. And with these two sets of coordinates, you could work back mathematically to the point where it had been launched in the woods uh, around the Hague, invisible to allied aircraft. And the idea was that if they could make that calculation in six minutes, they would then have time to scramble Spitfires with, you, 
uh, equipped with bombs to uh, attack the launch sites because the Germans took about 30 to 40 minutes to dismantle the launchers and get all the uh, equipment and the, and the men out of the way. That was the theory. Uh, that was in this Times obituary. And the moment I read that, the idea of these eight women there were being sent to sit in a bank vault and do these calculations, being billeted on the local population. The Germans hadn't not long gone, and it was said there were still Germans in the area. There must certainly have been a lot of German sympathisers. So it was a sort of, and it was winter, that part of Europe was starving. Um, and so I thought that this would just make a wonderful character. And that's how the novel started. It was it was to write about her, actually, chiefly. Well, I think actually one of the things you're, you're, you're really, really good at is getting that wartime atmosphere. And I remember reading um, uh, Enigma as well, that, that that sense of kind of sort of the drabness of the landscape of that kind of sort of skeletal monochrome of kind of midwinter and or sort of near midwinter anyway. Um, you, you get that across very effectively. And I remember from Enigma, it was kind of sort of, you know, I don't know how long it was, but sort of three years worth of no paint anywhere and no fresh paint, and you know that sort of sense of everything, sort of everything just looking a bit drab and weary. And you, and you, that atmosphere you 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 got across, I thought, really really well. Um, funny enough, I knew Eileen Young Husband because um, uh, I got to meet her a number of times because she had a lot to do with Bentley Priory, which of course was was the headquarters of RF Fighter Command, um, and she was in the filter yeah. room, I think. Um, in 1940, if I remember rightly, um, and obviously she wrote her memoir and stuff. But but some years ago, after it was sold off by the MOD and by the R, you know, by the RAF, um, they agreed that although it was sort of go, all going to be turned into kind of swanky houses and um, a, a new sort of residential kind of area, um, part of it would be a museum, and and I got roped in to do all the text for that museum, and they were very very keen that the WAF should be properly represented. And so they had these, you know, the, you know, they, they recreated the kind of the filter room in what, what had been the filter room uh, and also the sort of plotting tables and things. Uh, and she was one of the people that I talked to for that when I was doing all that work. And she, of course, you know, all the grand openings and all that kind of stuff, she was there and everything. And she was absolutely lovely. She was yes, well, I wish I'd no, no. I only saw, I've only seen clips of her being interviewed. And I, of course, I've read her books, One Woman's War, uh, and she wrote another one, I think. Uh, and they are marvellously evocative. I should say that my character in the novel bears no resemblance to her. I did not even the same job because I thought that it would be more interesting to bring in RAF Medmenham where the um, where the missiles yeah. were photographed. Yeah. Uh, and they, I thought that would be quite an interesting character. So she differs from Eileen in both in her job and obviously in her character. But it's only, as far as I'm aware... Only Eileen's ever written about the work of that unit. It's not in any of the official histories. Um, there may be something buried in the bowels of the public record office, but obviously when I was actually writing the book, that was closed, so I couldn't actually get to find out. There's very little uh, uh, has been written about it. That's interesting. Do you think she should have written about it? Is it, is it one of these things that was so super secret that she's why it's not it's turned possible. up anywhere else? It, uh, I don't know quite why it, it's... It's only, only her testimony. I mean, she's clearly an honest woman and, and you couldn't make it up, as they say. So yeah. she obviously did all this and there was no. this unit. And there were definitely there were definitely WAFs and people from Medmenham and all sorts of, who were, were sent over yeah. to Northwest Europe and, 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 and absolutely were in, in, in Belgium and Holland and so on um, in the latter half of the war. I mean, they, you know, they... they you know, I've, I've met other people that would do that. And I remember talking to Seb Cox. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across him, uh, Robert, but he's the head of the Air Historical Branch and sort of, you know, if you ever want to check anything about the RAF, he's right. he's your man. Um, but I remember going, go, talking about him at great length about all this and about all the women that were kind of sort of, you know, sent over as part of Second TAF and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, so there, there definitely were people out there. There's no, no, absolutely no debate about it at all. But but this specific job, I mean, I'm, I'm with Al. I had no idea about no. that. And um, one of the things, of course, that made me want to write the book, reading the obituary, was that she said uh, they were told, and I'm sure they were told, uh, that at the end of their first shift, they had actually, the Spitfires had got over in time and had hit two of the German launchers. I, I don't know how many launchers the Germans had, probably only about 30. So it was a significant mm. uh, achievement. And uh, But in all the research that I did, the German sources are pretty clear that the British never hit 
a single launcher in the whole course of the war. They harried, they, they caught occasionally <laughs> one out on the back of a railway truck and they obviously disrupted the rail lines, but I don't think that the mission in that sense was a success. Oddly enough, that made the book more interesting to me rather than less because um, the V2, though astonishingly impressive, and indeed, obviously, an embryo, the rocket that took men to the moon, was not a no, success. It was a huge waste of resources. And the idea that my two characters, the German rocket engineer, who half the book is about, and the uh, WAF, uh, that both of them, in a way, what they were doing, you know, it, they missed one another, as it were. Um, it made it, it it made it a more haunting story, actually. Yeah. I also, I've, I mean, you know, Al and I have talked about about the Nazis and their kind of, and about prioritization. And, and one of my theories about about the Second World War is that I think, by and large, you know, you can also always quibble about small things, but I think, by and large, one of the things that the British and the Americans do spectacularly well is prioritize what resources they have. That you know, they they they, they put. They put what they've got sort of pretty much in the right areas. As I say, you can, you can argue the toss over the kind of sort of, you know, minor details on certain things, but by and large, they, they spend correctly and use their resources correctly. Whereas the Germans, who, who are so short of natural resources, constantly firing off down the wrong alley. Um, you know, they yes, don't... And their reputation you... is for being efficient, isn't that? Yeah, still? yeah. Well, yeah, which is, which is yeah. one of the great ironies, of course, and... and you know, before the uh, before the Second World War, they have this they have this wonderful opportunity to build a really really large U boat fleet and train up their crews so that they're ready when they need to go to war, and, and they don't. They build a surface fleet, which makes absolutely no sense at all because you can't service that surface fleet. You know, you, they don't have any overseas possessions, and you know if you're going to send out cruisers and battleships and what have you out into the Atlantic, you better make sure you've got a base from which you can resupply them. Otherwise, you're going to constantly have to go back through the, you know, the Royal Navy blockade, which is superior to anything you're ever going to have. And so you're not going to win. So, you know, it, it makes no sense whatsoever, apart from the fact that, that obviously from Hitler's point of view, there's not a huge amount of fun smashing a champagne bottle against a submarine when you can do it against the Bismarck. You know, I mean, you know, Hitler's somebody who likes big stuff and, and you know, it's that whole kind of sort of big dick syndrome isn't it uh, uh, but but on a sort of really warped sort of weird level uh, and, and you know the rockets are kind of sort of symptomatic of that you know all you've got to do you know and 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 you, von braun you have him say saying of course he's going to back this because he's going to completely love it and you know literally you know click well, your fingers and penamunda has turned into a kind of sort of you know, this sort of flat sort of marshland on the kind of sort of baltic coast has been turned into this kind of sort of mini city i mean and research facility i mean it's absolutely well, astonishing astonishing how much money well, that, is plowed into that 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 was something i was going to ask you actually robert because von, von brown uh, von braun features in the in the book do you think that that um that that hitler and the people making these decisions were, were as much beguiled by him as they were by the rocket because it seems in lots of ways he's like the rocket he's he, he's <laughs> he's aiming for the sky for the moon or whatever and he doesn't care how he gets there like a rocket doesn't and he he really in your, in the novel that's how i really felt you represent him as he's so beguiling and he's cap- capable of convincing absolutely everyone of anything yeah, to get but von Braun is a very absolutely fascinating character faustian character really he made a pact with the devil uh, yeah uh, he was clearly very attractive very charismatic very brilliant um almost the archetypal aryan superman in a way uh, not a Nazi. He joined the Nazi party, not an SS man, although he was given an honorary SS rank. There was this sort of thing he had to do, you know, if you were going to get on and build a rocket. And I think he genuinely was most interested in getting into space and building these incredible um, spacecraft, is what he wanted to do. Uh, and he realised that uh, yeah. the only way you'd be able to do it was by the resources of a state. And he combined all these skill sets. He was a very gifted engineer. He was a visionary. He was charming. And above all, perhaps, he knew how to administer a vast project involving thousands of people doing lots of different things. He could hold it all together. And uh, yes, he did beguile Hitler. And But the, the, the real turning point was they actually made the V2 fly in October 1942. It, it performed perfectly. It, it went 60 miles high. It flew 200 miles. It was, they filmed it. Uh, and uh, eventually, after a, f- a few months, he got in to see Hitler 
and I love putting this in the novel, in a cinema in the middle of the wolf's lair, uh, and eventually Hitler showed up, and they ran the movie, and he stood, there was, it was soundless, but he stood and narrated the way through it, and it finished with a caption saying, we did it! <laughs> and uh, Hitler sat there, when the <laughs> lights came up, he was sort of open mouthed. He knew that they were going to lose unless there was something, some last manifestation of German genius which could yet turn this thing round. And he fell upon the V2 and uh, commissioned the manufacture of 10,000 of them, which I think was a, an enormous shock to the scientists at, at Paynemont, or a lot of them. I mean, I, I don't think they, this is a prototype rocket that should take you know, years to develop. And they're being told they've got to roll them off the production line, and, uh, which they did, but at an enormous human cost. Yes, uh, that well that, that which which you cover in the in the novel, of course. Now, I've been to Dora, to Dora Camp, uh, many years ago, um, which is where, which is where the rockets end up being manufactured after Pinamunda is is rumbled by, uh, rumbled by the Allies and then bombed by Bomber Command. They 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 end up in this in this mountain that's a gypsum mine. It's the most extra, It's the most extraordinary place, and you get the heart of the Nazi cruelty in making these machines, because I always think that the, the, the really dark irony there is they are training people literally to be rocket engineers. So some of the most skilled engineers on the planet and then working them to death. And uh, the, 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 we talk about the cost of the rocket, that the rocket costs more lives than it ever takes. And Nordhausen's door is the dark heart of that part of the project. Yes, the, I mean, Kamler, the SS uh, Brigade Führer, who was put in charge of uh, building it, was a civil engineer uh, before the war. Uh, he was the ultimate sort of can-do SS, Third Reich functionary, and had no interest in human life whatsoever. His previous project had been building the crematorium gas chambers at um, Birkenau. Auschwitz, yeah. Birkenau. So he, yeah. you know... He was told, you've got to turn this, you know, as you said, Peenemunde was bombed. It was no longer feasible to build the rockets there, which is what they were originally planning to do. So they had to find somewhere else. They had this mountain. They had one tunnel through it. They needed to turn it into a factory within four or five months. And he did it by killing maybe about 20,000 people, just blasting out the galleries and putting in the railway tracks. There was no shelter for these thousands of men. Uh, there was no sanitation. Uh, there was enormous cruelty. They were worked until they dropped, and uh, they built it. But at this this staggering cost, and this is the moral dark side, which fascinated me about von Braun and the rocket engineers. It's in, it's inconceivable that if you're head of the development program of the V2, you don't know the circumstances in which it's being mass manufactured. That's it's insane. To pretend yeah. otherwise, he must. He had an office at Nordhaus, and he must have gone there all the time. But because what he had was so valuable, of course, it wasn't. No one was going to prosecute him for war crimes. The British and the Americans and the Russians were all after him uh, to continue the program after the war, which he very well knew would be the case. We're going to take a short break now. We're talking to Robert Harris. See you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katie Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Robert Harris about his new book, V2, and a lot else besides. Camlo is, a, is a, also is a, is a fascinating character because he's so sort of shadowy, mysterious. There's only one, I think, one known photograph of him in, in uniform. And, you know, he's another of those people around which conspiracy theories tend to kind of sort of... Um, <laughs> attract like a magnet and um you know did he die near the skoda works somewhere in you know in what had been czechoslovakia did he get his ass over to argentina who knows i mean you know he almost certainly he was killed at the end of the war but but you know he is this it's extraordinary that that someone of his enormous power by the end of the war is so little known. I mean, there's so little on it. Yeah, no, he's a very shadowy figure and not a person, in fact, I have to confess that I'd ever heard of until I started on this story. Um, and uh, really, the story of the V2 is the story of a descent into darkness, which, so it starts with teenagers flying rockets on waste ground near Berlin. Moves to pay moves then to the munitions proving ground, Kammersdorf near Berlin. Then they get the base at uh, uh, Peenemünde, uh, and then gradually uh, the SS begin to take it over. The slave labour starts to appear at Peenemünde to build the factories uh, there, uh, and then when the RAF attacked Peenemünde, as so often happened, it was the slave labourers who couldn't get out of the barracks who got who suffered the brunt of the casualties and then um, they needed a place to test the missile and so they go to an SS facility in Poland. Then by the time the thing is operational Himmler has complete control over the whole thing and von Braun has been has spent two weeks in a Gestapo cell because they quite rightly had begun to rumble the fact that he didn't think this was much of a weapon either. <laughs> <laughs> he he was already thinking about the, the you know about the flat in Manhattan um, and uh, how he could get this technology across to the Americans. Uh, and you know this is this is a five billion dollar uh, project. It was cost I think actually slightly more in real terms than the Manhattan project did. <laughs> it, it's a huge chunk of German uh, military production. It was more it was like a sabotage uh, of, of German war economy in the end. And actually at the time, you know, in 1942, they decide not to go with the atomic project. I mean, you know, there are atomic scientists there. There is a, there's the um, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute and then there is a kind of sort of more Nazified, separate kind of faction of scientists who are working on, on the atomic bomb. And they quite rightly recognise that it's never going to be done and they're, they're too far away from... from from doing it so they give it a kind of sort of very soft backing you know crack on and keep seeing seeing where you can get but this isn't our big backing what our big backing is going to be is you know this other stuff and it, and it's it's you know it's amazing really you know that that again this is my point about kind of prioritization you know time and again you just see the germans kind of sort of you know missing not seeing what is in front of their noses and, and, and you know, they're sort of thinking, you know, vengeance weapons, rockets, something that can go into space. You know, clearly that is going to kind of wow the, the rest of the world so much that, you know, everyone else is going to sort of fall at our feet and we're going to turn the tide of the war. But but without any kind of sort of properly kind of thinking it through. It's a time. very I mean, German thing as well, isn't it? This engineering. I mean, they, they worked at the Borsig locomotive plant. They worked at Mercedes-Benz. It was big engines. It was, you know, fuel and all of that. Yes. Uh, and the, the theoretical Einstein science of, uh, of, 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 you know, of, of nuclear fusion was something that was wouldn't have been seen as area. I mean, quite as, and it was obsessed with cars and engines yeah. and so on. I mean, yes, uh, so it was, it was the per it, It's funny how these weapon systems. I mean, I, I would love to have, to write a non-fiction book which just looked at Bletchley Park, 
Peinemunde and Los Alamos, these three crucibles of the modern world, where you get these enormous leaps in technology, rockets, computers, nuclear power, uh, and each of them, they, they, it's thousands of scientists and experts pushed together, resources, no object, and with a state pressure to win a war. And the world is made, the modern world is made in these three places, it seems to me. Well, and also, well, but you could also, you, well, you, but you could also see, uh, and uh, a thing James and I talk about on this podcast a lot is that the the, the technologies, uh, even down to uniforms, ref, 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 uh, and what they're made of and how they're made, how they reflect the cultures they represent. So you could you could do that again. So the like you said, the Germans are interested in engineering. The British, you could characterize a lot of British war effort. Like, how do we puzzle our way out of this without having yes. to commit any actual people? What what? <laughs> What trick can we use to avoid spilling our own blood? And the Americans are like, blank check, blank check to blow the thing up. Um, bang for your buck as your, as your three paradigms of the, of the approaches to the war. And you could almost, you could almost see those on the three yes. right there. Absolutely. The, the, the Germans getting hung up on engineering, the British, the British, and especially as the British think... Bletchley Park comes out in the Navy as well, which we're, on the, we're always talking about this on the podcast, that the Navy's effort in the Second World War, the Royal Navy's effort in the Second World War, tends to get overlooked because it all kind of works. It's like trains that run on time. No one complains about trains that run on time. And, and the Navy delivers what it's asked to do right from the start and creates this intelligence network. Gen- the genesis of the whole code breaking comes from there. And then in the US, it's it's... It's big. It's I mean, in a way, the atom bomb is a sort of New Deal solution to the to the war, isn't it? It's a Rooseveltian solution. You spend a load yeah. of money, you get the best people in, and you, you also you deliver need a thing vast, at the end of uh, space. I mean, you know, you, you're not yeah. going to test yeah. the, the atom bomb on the North Yorkshire Moors, are you? I mean, <laughs> or Cornwall or somewhere. <laughs> so uh, yes, no. Each ref- and and you know, similarly with the uh, Germans, they had the Baltic. You know, they could fire the um, missile over 200 miles without hitting anybody. And you're so right about the Navy being overlooked. I mean, it's the Navy that really kept us in the war. And uh, one of, a book I read a few years ago about Munich. So the only service when Chamberlain had, was, met the service chiefs on the day of Hitler announced that he was about to mobilise, the, the Air Force wasn't ready, the Army wasn't ready, but the Navy was ready to go. I mean, it was the only one yeah. right throughout. Yeah. I, I mean, I've got to say, Al. I mean, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm very taken with your theory about, um, you know, it's a sort of shared theory, really. This idea that you can, you know, natural characteristics do come into it. I mean, it's really interesting, also. You know, when you go back to, I mean, I was, I mean, when I was doing all that work on the on the dams raid, and I was looking at the German dams, and you know, the, the you know, these engineers that made them, they they were absolutely household names. I mean, you know, they were they were incredibly famous in Germany, and there was the now I've forgotten his name, but the guy who straightened the Rhine, I mean, you know, in the sort of early yeah. 19th century. I mean, what, what an amazing kind of proposition that was at that stage of kind of sort of Prussian existence, then German. Um, and, and, you know, the dams, you know, the Eder Dam and, and the and the Myrna Dam, they're all built on sort of, you know, just before the First World War. And, the, you know, the Kaiser came to visit and, you know, it's kind of front page news and all the papers. And, and the way they described it was also... It, it was very martial. It's like you know, we are going to conquer nature. You know, we are t- we are we are taking nature to task, and we're going to show who's the master and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, Hitler would have grown up as well, kind of with with all these people, these these amazing engineers, and these incredible achievements at the time that they were achieved. You know, they were they were created absolutely at the forefront of his mind so in a way it's no surprise i think that that and also because they're so resource poor in germany they've got to sort of they've got to sort of get round that and and because they don't have access to the world's oceans a way to do that is by being brilliant at engineering and kind of sort of you know eking out the most of your river system and and by creating huge dams that so you can solve your water shortage and and so you can provide the water that you need for your industrial output in the Ruhr and blah 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 Uh, and so it's absolutely part of the german dna when they're trying to rebuild the, the the nation post the first world war that engineering, that technology, that Bosch and Krupp and all these people would be absolutely at the forefront of kind of getting them out of that mire. 
and that Hitler is going to be completely in fraud to all of them. I've, uh, another books that I've written in the past about ancient Rome, I've all, uh, I'm engineering in ancient Rome in Pompeii. I've always been struck by the similarity between the Germans and the Romans. Uh, uh, brilliant engineers, warlike soldiers, um, you know, taming in nature, as you say, aqueducts, new harbours, huge, monstrous constructions, you know, uh, allied with the martial uh, power and organisation. Uh, and the links between the two, it, right down to the symbolism, obviously, of fascism um, uh, yeah. and the salute and everything, is very, they, they really were the, the modern uh, Romans. And as you say, the, the pain of under was a staggering facility. I mean, the giant test bays, the huge uh, assembly rooms, the wind tunnel, which could reach eight times the speed of sound. I mean, it was, it was, imagine that. Uh, yeah, they had a power absolutely. station. Wow, they amazing, had exactly the same S-Bahn overground trains running in Piedmont bringing people into work that they had in Berlin, ultra-modern. They had a population of 20,000. They had cinema, they had schools, they had uh, airfield. I mean, it, you know, that, no, no expense. And, and this goes up in literally yeah, a click of a finger, isn't it? Yeah, it but like it's so quick, out of James Bond, and, uh, you know, a secret rocket facility yeah. on the Baltic. I mean, it's like uh, Thunderbirds <laughs> or something. It's enormous. I mean, you know, and, and always you yeah. feel with the British, it's a bit of paper and string and, uh, you know, uh, candle ends and, uh, you know. Yes, and in a, in a vicarage somewhere, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Robert, the, 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 is this stuff easy to research, though? Because surely Pinamunda, there are aspects of it that are still secret because the technology was also snaffled by the Americans and the Russians took what they could. Or is it is it easy to get hold of a picture of what Pinamunda was like? But it, it, You know, obviously it's the Germans, so it's not as secret as things like Bletchley Parks kind of still are. But but is it is this information easy to get hold I'd of? I'd say it's like pretty easy, actually. Um, I think that the, uh, the Russians captured yeah. the facility and there was one senior uh, engineer who went to work for them who was yeah. a communist. Uh, uh, but the, uh, I mean, the Americans captured a hundred V2s. Yes. Um, I think we got two. Yes. And that's what another character says in the book. We got the craters. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so uh, th I think the technology was quite, did become quite well known and it obviously isn't classified now. It's primitive uh, yeah. stuff. Well, oddly enough, what is hard to get hold of is actual testimony from the, the troops that fired the rockets. In fact, I know of only one book that collected about 16 interviews uh, with, the, with the people who were stationed in The Hague and were actually firing these things. Uh, I don't know why that is. First of all, I suppose there weren't very many of them, only in all probably about four or 5,000 troops at maximum. Uh, and then there was a very, it, there was a savage war crime at the end of the war instigated by Kamla when the rocket troops were retreating, there was a massacre uh, of civilians. Uh, yeah. but at any rate, whatever it is, there's no old co Comrades Association, there's no memoirs, there's no kind of magazine, you know, all those things that actually crept in later on, they've gone. And anyone firing those rockets would now well, be about 100. So I, I would think that their testimony is lost, actually. Well, maybe also that because the weapons were characterised as terror weapons and they lost the war, you wouldn't, forming a regimental association under that yes. banner might be quite difficult. <laughs> It, it might, might, might not be no, a thing you want not. to admit. To. Uh, it was an extraordinary, um, as, as, as you were saying earlier, James, it's the, for me, weather and adverse conditions and misery are the ideal components for a thriller. And when I went to <laughs> Shevingham uh, in the uh, beginning of November last year, it was hell. I mean, there was like, it was a holiday resort uh, in winter. Uh, there was rain and wind coming in off the North Sea. You could hardly stand up, you know. I thought, great. Oh, this is marvellous. I mean, to think of these Germans hiding out in the <laughs> woods, firing ballistic missiles at London. Yep. Uh, I thought, I thought I did, I did feel that I'd found something that hadn't really been written about. Now, there isn't much left in the war, you know, that hasn't been written about. But actually, those guys, there's almost nothing. We had an interesting conversation the other day because we were talking to a chap called Andrew Zeminski. He's actually a stonemason. He's a he's a lovely chap, and um, anyway, he's, it turns out his father was a pole. He was 
work, you know, he was sort of drafted into the Wehrmacht um, and had been on the V1s, <sighs> you know, helping to at launch La, those. Uh, at La Coupole. At La yeah. Coupole. I know, it's I mean, extraordinary, it? isn't it? I mean, and he ended yeah. up, you know, he ended up working on the quarries in Scotland after the war, you know, he sort of, he kind of sort of joined the other side and ended up in Britain at the end of the war. And, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the guys who were in these regiments were, Eastern Europeans, weren't they? Rather well, than I don't Germans. know. There were certainly people who had been trans... No, I think it was too secret. It was highly secret. Uh, they, yeah, they tended to be one of two types. Either veterans from the Eastern Front who, were, who had some technical expertise were transferred into the rocket battalions, or they were raw right. recruits, very young. Uh, and you talk about the V1s. The, the, the thing that really wrong-footed the British was that they assumed that these things were going to be launched for some giant bunker in uh, northern France. Uh, and it wasn't until quite late on that one of the, um, I think one of the women at um, RAF Medmanon doing photo reconnaissance happened to notice that there was a V2 standing erect ready to launch on the foreshore and there was no rail link. So, you know, she sort of <laughs> called right. the supervisor over and said, look, how are they getting it? You realise they must be moving these things by road. Uh, and that must have been an alarming moment because that was when they realised these things yeah. were mobile. They, they weren't going to be launched from some bunker you could yeah. capture or bomb. And uh, they could be launched. When they got to Blizzner, the, the British were allowed finally by the Red Army to look at the location. They found that the V... Twos, this giant 46-foot-high, 12-and-a-half-ton rocket was being launched from a platform five feet across. That was all it was. So you could just you could just set this thing up anywhere. Uh, and you could, I mean, that that is real part of the genius of the whole V2, actually, and what made it so terrifying. They couldn't be stopped, so as we said earlier, right at the end of March 1945, they were still hitting central London and killing hundreds yeah. of people. Yeah, and, and a huge amount of resources going to trying to stop that, you know, from, um, you know, home defences to fighter command to the the uh, uh, um, crossbow, um, you know, the whole well, operation I... crossbow, which involved a huge amount of kind of diversion of of, of, um, of bomber command and, and air force resources. And, and you know, the, the one thing that is always the case is that everyone will always defend their home territory. You know, yeah. that's why all the Luftwaffe is in in the Western Front, because that's where the greatest threat is from. You know, you have to defend your home. That is why, you know, Nazi Germany's got 15,000 anti-aircraft guns within Germany itself, and only kind of, you know, 32 on the Normandy Front in June 1944. Because yeah. you have to, you know, politically, even if you're a head of a totalitarian state, you've got to defend the homeland. You just have to. And so that is why, you know, when the V2s come in, you know, in a way, you know, it well, does involve, a, a, although it doesn't... De- you know, neither the V1s or V2s sort of kill any um, any combat troops in the combat zone. Um, it does involve a huge diversion of Allied resources to try and combat it. Well, it's well, arguably then. one of the reasons for the for the Market Garden offensive as well. Is that that's yes. about that's about getting into into uh, that part of Holland to, to stop it. Yeah. 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 And it's a very good reason for yes, when, it. Yes, when, as you know, when yeah. the uh, market garden looked like it was going to be a success, the Germans pulled out um, the rocket battalions uh, from The Hague and moved further up the coast. When, and they could, London was now out of range. Uh, so they could only, but they, they got the things, they wanted to fire them. So they fired them at Norfolk. That's got to be one of the most pointless things in warfare. You have a, a, a rocket that costs 125,000 marks and you fire it at Norfolk and it really it just it scared <laughs> cattle uh, um, that it had almost no military effect and then when not market garden failed the Germans went back into um, into the Hague and that's when the offensive really got underway and that's when the book starts because suddenly they're firing actually as many as 10 missiles a day yeah. in south, southern England but also you you I mean that's a that's a point very well made and which is is one of the reasons why market garden had to be worth the punt I mean you know you've got this allied airborne army you might as well use it and there is no greater kind of reason for getting across the Rhine quicker quickly than stopping the and they almost caught Kamla of course famously they very nearly he, he he came very close to being captured 
um, bizarrely. I got the feeling from the from the book, though, that um, uh, to come back to the novel, you were Robert. You were you were. How do I put this? Take quite taken yes. with the rocket <laughs> it's, in a way. That, 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 it's fair point. Um, that, uh, that, that does he get? Do, do, I mean, I, I almost feel like I know the I know the character better than some of the protagonists. Well, there are three characters in the book. There's Kay, the wife officer. There's there's Graf, the rocket engineer, and there's the V two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I get inside the V two almost as much as I get inside the two human characters. I think. I mean, literally. I like novels of procedure. You know, if you wrote about a code breaker, mm. when I researched Enigma right back in uh, the 90s, uh, 92, 93, a lot of those guys were still alive, Milner, Barry, all those people. And yeah. uh, they used to say, oh, well, Enigma, we did this, done the other, you know, we won in North Africa, we won in the North Atlantic. And I would say, no, 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 just tell me where you hung your hat and uh, where you sat and what did you actually physically do? I mean, what, if you're a code breaker, what did it, you have to do? And the, so I love procedure. And for me, writing about a German rocket engineer, well, what did he do? I mean, what would go wrong? Why would yeah, you, what was standing under these dripping trees in this freezing forest? What was your function? Yeah. And so I enjoyed that. I mean, I enjoyed the idea of what he was actually fixing transformers, climbing up ladders, swaying in the wind, trying to get his hands in the control compartments. You know. And of course, the thing was terribly dangerous for the, the RAF may not have hit any of these guys, but plenty of yeah. them died launching the damn uh, rocket. And the citizens yeah, in The yeah, Hague yeah. lived yeah. in terror every time they heard one of these things lift off because they never knew whether it was going to go up or come down or fly across, you know. Some, one of them flew across and hit northern Germany. Yeah, it's, it, it's extraordinary, though, and, and uh, that, the, the, again, this, the expenditure of effort for this thing that offered so little reward the, it, it, it is the, again, the... So much of what James and I talk about is that the, the, the again that the Nazis the, don't seem to realise they're beaten uh, in by nineteen forty three, and so are carrying on with this utterly harebrained yes. thing. Uh, even even well, I the, think that it's a product of their system. You know, it's a product of that Führer system where, in the end, the decisions were all made by one guy, and you you know you didn't really cross him. And uh, I think that it's pretty clear once one gets into the one gets into it that Himmler and the SS would, had rumbled the fact that this was uh, a mad idea, but they couldn't really do anything about it. Uh, and it was part of, uh, you know, the Führer principle. Uh, again, with Enigma, nobody really wanted to go and tell Hitler that maybe the codes had been broken. You know, um, you've got 100,000 Enigma yeah. machines, you know, across, spread across the whole of the Wehrmacht and everything, and you were... Uh, you say so there was always a tendency to sort of uh, draw back out of fear or whatever and uh, definitely his ability to simply with a stroke of a pen and on a whim and a dream commission this colossal rocket program uh, it wouldn't have been possible I don't think in America or in Britain no one person would have had the power I think to uh, to do that there would have been checks and balances but in, in, in Germany obviously it was possible um, do you do you think there's a another war novel that you want to write? Is there is there more in the Second World War? Because you 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 keep coming back. Well, to I've it, written two you? books actually in the war, Enigma and uh, uh, and V two, and I've written uh, uh, Fatherland, which um, imaginary German victory, and Munich b- yes, before but- it. Uh, well, I am endlessly, like you guys are, and like I assume the people listening to this are, endlessly drawn back to it. It's the biggest single event in human history. Uh, it, it created our modern world politically uh, and, yeah. and technologically, and we live in its shadow, and there are still people alive who live through it themselves. And uh, I think people will always go back to it because it's simply so huge. And if people say to me, you're, uh, you're, you're obsessed with the Second World War, I'm inclined to say, well, why aren't you? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yes, that yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Well, yeah. I gotta say, we are all. I mean, you know, you and I are. We're. we're I mean, I. Every time I sort of think, 
you know, I sort of finish a book or something or a project and I kind of sort of think, you know, you know, if, if, if my enthusiasm or fascination, fascination rather than enthusiasm kind of sort of, you know, sort of wavers, it, it's never more than about 15 minutes, if I'm honest. <laughs> you know, because, because it is, it's just this period of just such intense human drama as well. You've got yeah. these absolutely this political, social, technological earthquake going on around the globe. And innocent people and ordinary people, you and I, would have been caught up in all this. And, and that's what I think I find just so fascinating. And how the events that affect so many million people ultimately is quite often caused by and prompted by a very small handful, which is obviously the lesson of of, of world history. But, um, you know, that's why it sort of continues to fascinate and enthrall, I think. Um, yeah, no, it, it's been an obsession of mine all, all my life. I was born in 1957, so when I was, you know, I was born in Nottingham, there were still bomb sites there, and uh, everyone had been through the war, and all the television and, the, you know, your comics were all, you know, Tommy's and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Achtung, Spitfire, and uh, also, by my nature, questioning a lot of what I was told, um, and... Things change. That's the other thing about history. Second World War. There's always something new to say. It always looks every year. It looks different. You know, every year yeah. there's a new fashion, and 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 things change. And it's so it's an ever-changing mirror, really, in which we examine ourselves. Uh, and you ask yourself, how would I have fared? I mean, so one of the things in this book was the just a small thing: the pilots who flew those reconnaissance missions, pushing heights above. Berlin with no uh, heater and uh, an air supply that if it failed, you, you'd be finished. And one of them describing being so high, he could see the curvature of the earth. He could see the Baltic. He could see uh, the Alps. And below him was Berlin. I mean, uh, and unarmed as well doing this. I mean, could you do it? Would, you be, would one be capable of doing such a thing? I think that's one of the things that the Second World War always poses to all of us. How would you have coped? Uh, and on the German side, if all your comrades had been involved in some massacre, would you be the one to not take part? Would you be the one to say, no, transfer me out of this? Or, or would you would you have gone along with it just because they were your mates and that was that was what, you know, you did and you were young? Again, you know, you, that's why it's interesting to work on this uh, because it always asks questions of oneself, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, Robert, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, uh, the, the, the V2 uh, is out now. <laughs> um, it's just been launched. I highly recommend it. Um, it's literally, yes, <laughs> yeah, with, a, with, a, with a countdown. They invented the countdown well, for the Fr rocket, It was didn't the they? first that, use that, in it, Fritz Lang's movie, uh, Frau in Mond, and uh, all Ron Brown and all the people were involved in doing publicity stunt of building a rocket for that film, which is about 1930, I think. And uh, so, yes, that was the first ever use of a countdown. And when they started building their amateur rockets, they kept it. And, and they handed it on, obviously, when they started building uh, missiles in uh, the United States. Amazing. Well, Amazing. well th thank you so much for, for talking to us. Um, uh, uh, Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.